You're listening to Qalam Institute's podcast series, Sirah, Life of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Qalam is pleased to announce the Khatib Training Workshop. Find out more at khatibworkshop.com. That's K-H-A-T-E-E-B workshop.com. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. So continuing on with our series on the life of the Prophet ﷺ, in the last couple of sessions we've been talking about the duration or the time period immediately preceding the first and the beginning of Revelation. And um, this is something I've said multiple times but I just want to reiterate very quickly that you know, aside from the fact that any believer understands the magnitude and the importance and the, 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 the great significance of this event and this occurrence of divine revelation coming, coming down, the nubuwa of the Prophet ﷺ officially beginning, the revelation of the Qur'an initiating, any Muslim, any believer would understand the significance of that. And even so much so that historians, social scientists, um, other scholars of other secular fields have also acknowledged the importance of this occasion even if they choose not to believe nevertheless they acknowledge the significance of this occasion simply based on the fact that this is seen as a pivotal moment within human history it was the turning point in the history of not just the, the entire world but very specifically it was a turning point in the history of a people that had long been entrenched within darkness you know, the, 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 the people of the Middle East, the Arabs of that time and of that era were considered savages by the people of the rest of the world. Even though they were, to, to, in some aspects, they had a very enlightened culture. Linguistically, literally speaking, they were very gifted people. They were people of great art, artistic expression. They were people of great memory and even great um, intellectual ability. I mean, a four-year-old child would be able to tell you his entire family lineage 20 generations back. Um, you know, the, uh, a boy, when he would first learn how to ride a horse, a part of learning how to ride a horse was also learning the lineage of that horse. Because they were thoroughbreds. These were horses who, whose lineages were preserved. So at eight, ten years old, when a boy learned how to ride a horse, he also memorized the lineage of the horse that he was riding on. So in certain aspects, they were a very gifted people. But nevertheless, by some of the other civilizations of that time, they were perceived to be savages. And history remembers them to a certain extent in, in a similar manner. So this was a turning point in the history of these people as well. And so it's a very, very great momentous occasion that's approaching. Now... Something that's a very interesting part of our deen, something that's a very interesting part of uh, spirituality within our deen is that a part of the teaching of Islam, and I'll use one example as, and a very, uh, I'll use a very significant example to illustrate this as kind of a case study to make this point. Salah, the prayer, the daily Muslim prayer, which is, you know, the most, uh, important practice within the deen of Islam. It's the most practical, most important practical thing that we're instructed to do within our deen. And it's the basis and our foundation as Muslims. But something interesting about the salah is that we, part of the method of praying and what the Prophet ﷺ has taught us about the prayer and the salah is that we don't go from just engaging in any other social activity. We don't go from having the middle of a conversation, watching television to immediately just say Allahu Akbar. 
We don't do that. That's, that's, that's not even technically speaking, we're not allowed to pray that way. But salah, and pra- salah, the prayer has some preparation. And it's part of our deen, it's a part of the instruction that's been given to us in regards to the prayer. First and foremost, we require wudu. We require purification. And so we have to make sure that we're in a state of ritual purification. And so we have to prepare ourselves to pray. We have to make sure that we are clothed properly and we are cleansed in order to be able to stand up and pray. We have to make sure that we face the qibla. In order to face the qibla, if we come to the masjid, then that in and of itself is part of the preparation and the effort and the buildup. You're driving, you're walking to the masjid. But if you choose to pray wherever it is that you're at, then that is, by the way, a concession that was provided to this ummah. The Prophet said, The entire earth has been made a masjid for me. And so, if you decide to pray wherever it is that you are, you first have to find the qibla. Right? You have to fig- try to figure out the direction of the qibla. So the point I'm trying to make, and so much so that look at the little details. The Prophet commanded us that whenever you stand up to pray, place a sutra in front of you. The Prophet ﷺ told us to place a sutra in front of us when we pray. So when you take all of that into consideration, making wudu, making sure you're clean, making sure you're clothed, facing towards the qibla, place a sutra in front of you. When you put all of that together, you realize that there is some preparation, there's some build up to the prayer. And aside from these being just technical requirements or technical details, there's actually something very practical about this and something deeply spiritual about this. Because just that preparation and that buildup allows you to acclimate, it allows you to kind of warm up. You know, when you start your car early in the morning, particularly during the winter time, you don't just start your car, throw it into drive and slam on the gas. Or maybe if you're 18 years old, you do, but then your car pays the price for it. Right? So typically speaking, what you're properly supposed to do is turn your car on and let it warm up. Right? And so similarly speaking, to kind of get in the zone, to properly warm up, all of this buildup helps a believer in that, in that regard. So much so that the, the scholars even recommend for khushu' within the salah. This is very interesting now. They say, Al- the Ibn Kathir, he says, Al-khushu' yuhsalu liman farraqa qalbahu salah The khushu' will be attained, will be, uh, will be achieved by whosoever empties his heart, frees his heart, frees himself up for the prayer. So he kind of empties everything out, frees up his heart and his mind, and now he's ready to pray. So it requires that type of a buildup. Divine revelation is about to begin. All right, and I said like spiritually, Islamically speaking, it has great significance to us as Muslims. You know, historically speaking, it has significance. And also historically speaking, we also have to realize this is the first time in 600 years that divine revelation is going to be coming down. This is the first time in 600 years that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will be communicating His will and His command to the believers and to, the human, to human beings, to people. So this is a landmark occasion. It wasn't going to randomly just happen one day. It wasn't going to happen without some type of a build-up. Even though in our sessions covering the seerah, the 25 some odd sessions we've had, it, you know, if you've, been, if you've been paying attention or you go back and you listen, what, what we've realized is that there was a very slow build-up that was happening even from before the birth of the Prophet ﷺ. The rediscovery of Zamzam, the attack of the elephants, all of that was building up to the birth of the Prophet ﷺ was a momentous occasion. And then throughout the childhood and the youth and the adulthood of the Prophet ﷺ, there was these experiences, these incidents that kept happening. 
continuously building up to this event. But now when we were right there, we're, we're on the cusp of the beginning of Revelation, on reopening the doors of Nubuwa at that time, when the Prophet is nearing the age of 40, now things really start to rev up. Things really start to speed up. And we talked about some of that. We talked, we talked about how, you know, um, some of the kuhan, Right, some of the uh, fortune tellers, the soothsayers, who would basically they would they they would have a very um, they would have a mutually beneficial relationship with shayateen. So evil jinn shayateen would bring them little bits and pieces of information uh, about people or about situations or circumstances or events, and they, when people would come to them to get their fortune told to them then they would tell them these little bits and pieces of information when that would actually come true. Or they knew something intimate or private about them, they'd be like, oh my God, how do you know that? And essentially corrupting the faith of the people. And that was beneficial to the shayateen because that's kind of their job, that's what they do. They, they corrupt the faith of the people. And so some of these fortune tellers are sitting around waiting for these shayateen to come to them. And when they wait and wait and wait and weeks or months are going by without any new information from the shayateen, so their business is going down the drain. When the shayateen do come again, then they are, so they're asking them, the fortune tellers are asking the shayateen, where you been? I've been sitting here waiting for you. And so they're, they're telling them, That a prophet is about to come from these Arabs. And he will call towards Allah. And he will call towards the worship of Allah. And then I, I, I mentioned this last time as well. That they would, so this one fortune teller, he says, he says that I'm very shocked by what's going on with these jinn and how they've completely lost control of their situation and how all their information has been cut off from them. And he says that some of these jinn, because some of the fortune tellers are finding out that a lot of these shayateen or these jinn have left. So where are you going? They said, we're going to Mecca. So why are you going to Mecca? He said, we're going to receive guidance. We were going there to meet this prophet and we want to go find this prophet and find guidance. And they say, مَا خَيْرُ anjasiha That there are good jinn and there are bad jinn. And the bad jinn are still trying to find some way to keep business going. The good jinn have realized that the time of the final prophet is coming and they're on their way there to accept Islam on his hands. فَرْحَلْ إِلَى صَفْوَةِ بِبْنِ هَاشِمْ وَاسْمُ بِعَيْنِكَ إِلَى رَأْسِهَا Saying we're going over there to Safwa bin Hashim, um, which is basically the name of a prominent leader from the family of Quraysh, one of the sons of Hashim. His name was Safwa bin Hashim. So they're saying we're going to the family of Safwa bin Hashim and we want to go there to be able to um, kiss the eyes and kiss the head of this Prophet. And so you find this, this type, basically, that this, this is a truth that is slowly starting to become more and more apparent to these people. There's even mentioned by the, in a narration, in a hadith, that the Prophet of Allah وسلم, was approached by a, a, a man who came to accept Islam. And when he finally comes to the Prophet and he's so, in, so excited, He's so overwhelmed to meet the Prophet ﷺ that the Prophet ﷺ asks him, is everything okay, what's your story? And he tells the Prophet ﷺ his story, that I was a fortune teller. I was a soothsayer and I used to be visited by these jinn and these shayateen. 
And they used to visit me and they would talk to me and they would tell me things. And for quite some time I, I you know, took benefit. I tried to take advantage of this situation that I had. And he says, until one day that, you know, they came to me and they basically told me that you need to go to Mecca and find the final prophet and go and accept Islam on his hands. And so he says, I came here looking for you and now that I've found you, it's so overwhelming to finally find you and accept Islam and to see you with my own eyes. And at that point in time, the Prophet of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam asks him a question. He says, فَهَلْ يَأْتِيكَ رَأِيُّكَ الْيَوْمِ so the Prophet asked him that, do these jinn still come and talk to you even now till today, these shayateen? Do they still come and talk to you now till today? And he says, He says, ever since I first recited a word from the book of Allah, from the Quran since that day on, these shayateen don't visit me anymore. These shayateen don't come to me anymore. I specifically wanted to mention this particular narration because we see, even from the beginning of Revelation, we see one of the direct benefits of dhikrullah, recitation of the Quran, is protection from such evil forces. And this works in two ways. Number one, the Quran, the Quran and the dhikr of Allah, the remembrance of Allah, which the Quran is the greatest form of it, is protection from evil forces. You know, there's a certain reality to these things. There's a certain reality to jinn and to shayateen. There's a reality to jinn. There's a reality to shayateen. There's a reality to the waswasa of shayateen. There's a reality to jinn, sometimes nefarious jinn, very troublemaking jinn, you know, messing with people, bothering people. There's a reality to these things. But what we're told is to not be overly paranoid about them. There's this very interesting balance, or rather imbalance I should say. There's these interesting extremes. A lot of times in Muslim countries, there's this perception of everything is equated to just a problem with jinn. So somebody can be autistic, somebody could have some type of chemical disorder, somebody could be clinically depressed, oh it's all jinn. Right, so there's a little bit of a paranoia almost. And over here, of course, in the society we live in, where there's no acknowledgement of these things at all. So much so that even within Muslim circles, within the Muslim community, some people dismiss all this stuff as superstition. There's no reality to these things. But there's a fine balance in between, where we have to kind of acknowledge a balance. That there is a reality to maybe somebody having an emotional, psychological, mental disorder. But at the same time, there's a reality to these things as well. But even if we were to talk about evil jinn and shayateen affecting people, messing with people, possessing people, bothering people. So what's the protection from that? Because that, that sometimes can drive people, um, can make people very frightened and very paranoid. The protection from that is in the dhikr and the remembrance of Allah. The first and foremost solution is having regular five times daily prayer in your life. A solution to that is engaging in the dhikr of Allah. Reciting the book of Allah. The primary solution to a lot of these different spiritual evils, these spiritual illnesses, these spiritual ailments, the for, first and foremost solution that we've been given by the Messenger of Allah is the Mu'awwadatayn. Reciting Suratul Falaq and Suratul Nas, morning and evening. That is from the book of Allah, that's from the Qur'an. So having a relationship with the Qur'an is protection from a lot of these evils. And that's in two ways. Number one is there is a reality to just the barakah and the blessing of even just the recitation of the Qur'an. Just reciting the mu'awwadatain, reciting ayatul kursi, morning and evening, reciting ayatul kursi, ba'da kulli salatin, ba'da kulli faridatin, after every fard obligatory prayer. These are sources of blessing and these are sources of virtue and they do serve as a protection.
But then when you go a little bit deeper, you also understand and realize that the Qur'an and the Book of Allah and the remembrance of Allah is also a form of protection because of what it means. When you understand it, like Suratul Mulk, the scholars have said, the Prophet of Allah in an authentic narration says, somebody who recites Suratul Mulk every evening, it will be a protection for that person in their grave. It will be a protection for that person in their grave. Now that doesn't just simply mean that, it has a certain meaning that even if you just ritualistically recited it, and you believed in the virtue and the power of the surah, it will serve as a protection for you insha'Allah bi'idhnillah. But at the same time, the Prophet was also alluding and bringing our attention to the fact that when somebody understands the message of Surah Al-Mulk, they comprehend it, they internalize the message of Surah Al-Mulk, and then they live their lives by those same values, it will naturally serve as a protection in their grave because it just changed the way they live their life. Now this person is living their life in a better way, so of course that's going to, that's, this person enjoys a better, more fruitful relationship with Allah, so of course that's going to help and protect that person in their grave. So I wanted to mention this, that he says, Ever since I started reciting the Book of Allah, now these, now these jinn no longer visit me. And he says, He says, how awesome of a, of a substitute is that? That before I used to spend my time with jinn and shayateen, messing with me and talking in my head and bothering me. And he goes, now I recite the Book of Allah. And now the only thing I got in my head is the Quran is the Book of Allah. That's what occupies my time. So he says, what an amazing substitute. So we find that a lot of these different incidents and situations were occurring, which we talked about over the last couple of weeks. Now we transition over to going back to focusing on the Prophet of Allah What was going on with the Messenger of Allah So in these months leading up to, and in fact some scholars say even a year, two years, Leading up to the beginning of Revelation, the Prophet ﷺ, now he was a much older man of course, he's nearing 40. So, and, and like we talked about, one of the reasons why from 25 to the age of 30, you know, at the age of 30, uh, in fact 25 to 35, we don't have a lot of narrations about what happened in between here because the Prophet ﷺ, again being Uswatun Hasana, being the ultimate role model, the Prophet ﷺ's primary focus and his main achievement during this time was establishing a home and a family. And we have to understand that because oftentimes that can almost be seen as, oh, there's this empty part in the seerah. No, no, it's not an empty part in the seerah. Right? It might not be documented because they weren't these public events. Because oftentimes it's not very glamorous. Right? It's not something that's publicly happening. Right? So, so when, I'm, when I'm giving a lecture and I'm talking here, now this is being seen. And this is being broadcast and this is being recorded. So now this is very, this is acknowledged, this is seen, this will be documented. But if I spend two hours at my home talking to my own kids and teaching the same lesson of Sirah to my own children, that's not being, you know, that's not being publicly put out, that's not being recorded, that's not being documented. So all of a sudden, oh yeah, yeah I don't know, I don't know what he's up to. Oh, he didn't, he didn't have any activities this evening. No, no, he had the most important activity this evening. Because he was actually investing into his own home, his own family. So that was the Prophet's time for his family. He, he, had his, he was raising his kids, he was building a relationship with his wife, he was settling a family, building a home. He was building a home during that time. So that time was invested into that. And he had invested 10 years, think about that, 10 years of a person's prime. 25 to 35, that's usually the time when we're the most neglectful of our families. Why? Because I was trying to, you know, my work my way up to partner. 
I was trying to open my own practice. You know, I was hitting the road, I was traveling, you know, heavily, I was consulting. You know, that, so that's usually the time when we're the most, or we're too, still too busy, you know, hanging out with people. Still too busy trying to stay young, trying to be young. But that was the time when the Prophet ﷺ invested heavily into his own home, his own family. Now he's around the age of 35. We talked about that major event at the age of 35, the reconstruction of the Kaaba, and the very prominent role the Prophet ﷺ played. And obviously what's, what's very, very um, apparent is when he was involved in that reconstruction project, he all of a sudden was reminded of the dire situation of the society he lived in, particularly spiritually. Because he's there at the Kaaba. Helping them in the reconstruction, the rebuilding of the, of the Baytullah, the Kaaba, the house of Allah. And he's seeing that, how bad the situation is. It's full of idols and these people worshipping idols and they're completely lost. And their lives have no meaning. And they, don't, they lack any type of direction. And the effect of that type of a corruption in spirituality is a corruption in family life. There's a corruption in social activity, there's a corruption in business dealings. This corruption is widespread all across the board in terms of this society. And so he's reminded of this, and what that eventually pushed the Prophet ﷺ to was deep reflection, deep thought. He's, he's, he's an older man now. He's nearing the age of 40. And he, his kids are starting to grow up. They're starting to you know, get older now. And so now he's starting to think and reflect on certain things and he's realizing society is in shambles. Humanity is suffering. And so he decides to find some time, kind of clear, you know, kind of get all the noise, get away from all the noise and all the disturbance and find time to sit and deeply think and reflect. And the Prophet of Allah ventures a little bit outside of Mecca. He's kind of walking around, trying to clear his head, trying to reflect on what's going on. And while walking around, he kind of goes up into the mountains and the hills and starts climbing up, kind of like taking a hike. And he's hiking up into the mountains and he goes all the way up one mountain, comes back down on the other side, which we know as Jabal, just Jabal Nur, right? And so he goes up, but he basically, right outside of Mecca, he climbs up onto one side of the mountain, it's described, and he comes back down on the other side. Because the, the Ghar Hira, the cave of Hira, where it's located, the side that the cave is located, climbing up on that side is very treacherous, it's very difficult. So you climb up on off the other side. And so he climbs up off the other side and he comes back down on the other side and he sees this little cave. And it's, it, it smooths out and has an opening, but it's a very small opening. The opening is so small, only one person can go in at one time. And the way the cave is, cave is, is that it's got a small opening, um, but when you go in, it's got enough, just barely enough room so that somebody can stand inside. At the most, it's only wide enough for maybe two people to stand inside, but the cave goes in and tapers back off. So it narrows down towards the end of the cave. And at the end of the cave, it's actually got another opening. It's got a very small opening on the other end of it. So it's got ventilation actually. So it's open on both ends, very small on one end, and it's got a bigger opening on the other end. And so it kind of recedes in. 
And when he finds his cave and he sits down to take some shelter to kind of catch a breather, he looks around and he says, so it opens up and there's a little bit of a clearing, just real, not, not real big, but really small, but still there's a little bit of a clearing out in front of it. So it kind of makes you comfortable. But at the same time, when he looks out from it, he sees, when he sits down and he sees this little clearing in front of it, he sees that on the side of it, there's a couple of big rocks. So it still kind of gives you the, the feeling of kind of being closed off, like being in a closed private room, where you're not just out there in the open. It's got a couple of big rocks off to the side of it. So you do sort of feel like you have some privacy. And then here's, the, here's, here's where he's completely sold. This is what seals the deal. When he sits at the opening of that cave and he looks out, he can see straight into Mecca and he can actually see Baytullah in the distance. He can see Baytullah in the distance. And something uh, that we know from the life and the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ is that the Prophet ﷺ had very sharp vision. The Prophet ﷺ had very sharp vision. Extremely sharp eyesight. And so the Prophet ﷺ actually looks off into distance and he can see the Baytullah, the Kaaba. And so he sits down there. And he feels very comfortable there. It's quiet, it's peaceful, the wind is kind of coming through and blowing through the cave. So it makes you nice and comfortable. And he just sits there quietly and he can see the Kaaba. The most beautiful thing he's ever seen in his life. The thing that kind of brings him peace and tranquility. Because the Kaaba is the Baytullah, it's the house of Allah. So he sits there and he looks at the Kaaba and he, he enjoys the moment. He really, really finds some serenity, some calm there. So now the Prophet ﷺ goes back to Mecca. And it's said that the very first occasion the Prophet ﷺ actually you know, meditated there, performed i'tikaf there, took seclusion there. At tahannuth, what's called at tahannuth, which basically means to kind of isolate yourself. The first time the Prophet did it, the, some of the scholars of Sirah actually mentioned that it was a month of Ramadan. It was a month of Ramadan, some of the scholars mentioned two years before the first revelation. So two Ramadans before the first beginning revelation, the Prophet packs up some food, packs up some stuff, some clothing, like packs a little bag, he tells his wife Khadija radiallahu anha, that you know, I, I need some time, I wanna go there, I wanna just take some time and just be able to get away from everything and just reflect and just kind of find some peace. And she had even seen that just the society and what was going on with people and just reflecting on it was very, just, you know, it was very, it was very difficult for him. It was weighing heavy on him. So she goes, go ahead, take some time. So now the Prophet of Allah him packs up his stuff and he comes up to this cave of Hira. And some of the scholars of Sirah mentioned that he stayed there throughout the month of Ramadan. Some say no, he stayed for a part of the month of Ramadan. Wallahu ta'ala alam, Allah knows best. Until his supplies were exhausted, and then he came back down. And then some of the scholars say that he did not return back until the next following Ramadan. And that entire time he longed for it. He looked forward to it. He was anxious about going back. And then he returned back the next, it's almost like he was counting the days. And when the next Ramadan came, then he packed up his stuff again and he left. And he went and he stayed for a number of days, there in the cave of Hira. Now there's a lot of speculation, especially it seems like a lot of even Orientalists and more contemporary scholars in the last couple of hundred years have really tried to read into what was the Prophet ﷺ engaging in when he was going to this cave. And even some classical scholars have talked about it. The truth of the matter, the fact of the matter is we don't have a lot of detail. 
Does that prevent us from reading into it? No, not exactly, but at the same time, we also at the same time don't want to assume too much on behalf of the Prophet ﷺ. We don't really truly know what he was exactly engaging in at that time. Whether he was praying or not, what form was he praying or not, what was he thinking about, what was he reflecting on. But there is this much truth to the fact because of the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, he says that he was specifically targeting some form of isolation to be able to clear his head, to be able to find some peace and quiet, and to be able to deeply reflect. And without a doubt, without a doubt we believe in the fact that you know, everything is by, by the divine decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that this was part of the divine plan of Allah, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala arranged and, and implicitly commanded the Prophet inspired that desire within the Prophet and that direction within the heart of the Prophet to go and to isolate himself and deeply reflect and think. And that was in be to prepare him and to prepare his heart, to prepare him and his heart for receiving divine revelation. And that's why I started off by saying, by talking about that topic, that similarly today, when we pray, when we offer salah, when we, you know, try to connect and communicate with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we also have to understand that there's a process that builds up to that. And that's a part of preparing your heart to connect with Allah. It's to prepare yourself to communicate with Allah, to experience the Salah properly. That's why the scholars even had adab, they had etiquettes about the recitation of the Qur'an. The recitation of the Qur'an has etiquette. Classical scholars for 1400 years, they practiced etiquette when it came to reciting the Book of Allah. Today we, you know, today we have the predicament, we have the situation where a young person comes along, you know, and kind of says, yeah, well, what's the dalil? What's the evidence? Is that required? Really? What's your proof? What's your evidence? It's like, easy there, bucko, right? Take it easy. Relax a little bit. There was a process for a reason, right? We, we, we discount wisdom so easily that it's just ridiculous. Like we expect everything, you know, to be packaged in a way that according to my expectations. But you have to, you have to observe, you have to learn. That's not to say the Qur'an, the recitation of the Qur'an should be practical. It should be practical. And so there will be situations where maybe you can't observe all the etiquettes. You should still recite the Book of Allah in whatever form you can. But there should be time that should be invested in to where you make wudu. And you kind of turn off your phone. And you shut the screen. And you sit down. And yes, classical scholars, when they would reflect and they would deeply think and contemplate on the Qur'an and make the dhikr of Allah and internalize, they would face the qibla when they would sit down. Etiquette, it's just observing something properly. You're talking to Allah. You're talking to Allah. If you sit down and you're talking to your dad and you're talking to your dad, legs spread out, TV's on, looking at the TV, texting on your phone, talking to your dad, like, yeah, uh-huh, sure. You know what's gonna happen? He's going to backhand you. He's gonna slap you so hard, you're gonna get silly, right? That's what's going to happen. So that much etiquette is expected to talk to any human being. What about the etiquette that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala deserves from us when we communicate, we talk to Him? So I'm not saying that those are requirements. I don't have the right to say that those are requirements. Allah only Allah and His Messenger وسلم, can put requirements on us. But etiquette is there. Adab and etiquette, making time for that type of reflection. If you're on a plane, you're driving your car, you're reciting Qur'an, that's fine. 
But make time to reflect. And so making wudu, saying a'udhu billah, bismillah, sitting down, sitting with some dignity, sitting with some respect, and then reading and thinking and contemplating. That's one of the reasons why even till today I would recommend that when you recite the Qur'an in the book of Allah, you know, having the Mus'haf, having the Qur'an on the phone or on an iPad or on your computer is a great convenience. SubhanAllah, it's a great convenience. I agree. But make time to sometimes just kind of read out of a non-electronic form of the Qur'an. Because you know what happens on the electronic, like, you know, Qur'an as well. You know what also happens. So yes, it's got a Qur'an, brother. It's the same Qur'an. What are you talking about? Right? There's no extra virtue or reward in reading from that. Yeah, but you know what doesn't happen when you read out of the physical Mus'haf, like a, like a printed Qur'an? You don't get a text message update. Right? So you're not reading Qur'an, you're not saying, Alam tara kayfa fa'ala rabbuka bi ashabil feel. Do you want to go have dinner afterwards? That doesn't happen when you read out of the Mus'haf. So the Prophet of Allah Wasallam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created a system in the time leading up to divine revelation where he was separated and distanced from everything. For time, little, little bits and pieces of a time. You know, this kind of finding some quiet time, preparing the mind, preparing the heart, preparing himself to receive the kalam of Allah. The most miraculous thing mankind has ever witnessed. To communicate with Allah, to connect with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so this was part of the preparation that the Prophet ﷺ received leading up to divine revelation. Inshallah, in the next session we'll talk specifically about the beginning of that revelation. And actually, before Iqra came, there was other forms of wahi before Iqra came. People often don't realize that. There were other forms of divine inspiration before Iqra. And that's why the scholars say there was wahi, there was wahi that was jali, Al-Wahyul Jali and then there was Al-Wahyul Khafi. There was more of an implicit, there was more of a subtle form of divine inspiration that again continued to prepare the Prophet ﷺ for that momentous occasion, for that grand experience, which was the beginning of the revelation of the Qur'an. So inshallah in the next session we'll talk about some of the more subtle experiences of divine revelation that led up to the Prophet of Allah ﷺ first receiving the divine revelation. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us all the ability to practice everything that we've said and heard. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us true appreciation for the life of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam.